It is good to see you all this morning. Thank you for coming. And uh, we're going to start a new uh, series this morning on uh, the community of Christ, uh, looking really at at uh, some of the themes that we hope to uh, not only study but accomplish uh, during our, our next, this coming year, through the life groups. So let's talk a little bit about community before I read the passage of Scripture. The easiest thing in the world for us to do is to isolate ourselves uh, and, and not bother with friendships, not bother with getting together in groups, not bother coming to church. Those things are very easy. And uh, it, can, it can also become a, a pattern of life where we just feel like, you know, I've just got too much on my plate. I'm too busy. I'm, I'm just too, uh, too tired. People make me tired. Uh, the other thing that can happen is you can use community to medicate yourself. In other words, you come to everything and you're involved in everything. And when we open the doors of the church, we got to scoot you out of the way to get to the lock and unlock it. And that's a, a way that some people use community to self-medicate. So there's on the one hand, there's, you know, I don't want to bother. It's just too much work. On the other hand, I'm going to be involved in everything because I need to be around people uh, to, to keep me centered and calm. And both of those can become a problem. And, and that's uh, uh, something that we're going to talk about over the next uh, eight or nine weeks is what does healthy community look like? Why are we starting these life groups? Why do you need to be in a life group? Um, why, why do we do the journey? The journey is an intensive discipleship course that uh, I wish every one of you could go through the three-year program of the journey. It's, it's, there's nothing like it in El Paso. There's nothing like it in the Southwest. And so, you know, these are things where you can be formed and shaped in your faith, and your Christianity is not going to get easy. It's not just going to become a party all the time. Uh, but you will have people around you uh, that can help you make this sometimes uh, intensely difficult journey. So I invite you to open the Word of God uh, this morning to Genesis chapter 1. And what we're going to talk about today is we, we were created for community, and that's what we're going to look at, how we were created as human beings and how God designed this whole world to be a world that was lived in community. So... Uh, look at Genesis chapter 1, and if you don't have your scriptures with you or you'd rather use the uh, the text in the bulletin, it's printed out there for you. So I'm actually going to read from that because it's uh, written in a, a translation a little different than this that I picked uh, for this purpose. So let's begin with Genesis 1, and we'll start with verse 24. Then God said, Let the earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring of the same kind, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and wild animals, and that is what happened. God made all sorts of wild animals, livestock, and small animals, each able to produce offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us, they will reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, and all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in His own image. 
In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I have given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Everything that has life. And that is what happened. Then God looked over all He had made and He saw that it was very good. And evening passed and morning came, marking the sixth day. Now the next section comes from Genesis 2. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, You made freely from all the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the animals and all the birds of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. The man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock and birds of the sky and all the wild animals, but still there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God called the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while the man slept, the Lord God took out one of his ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, This one is bone from my bone, flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were naked, but they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so let's talk about this. Obviously, when you're reading through this, you see what God was doing. He was forming community. And he didn't just form community among people. He also formed community among the animals themselves. There was a command for a communal nature in, in all of creation. The, what we call in theology a plurality of all things. Temporal, natural, the things that are in this world all live in community. Plants and animals and human beings. Each producing, look at the phrase in the text, it's over and over again, after their kind. 24 and 25, they produce offspring of the same kind. Livestock, small animals, offspring of the same kind. In verse 25, it's repeated, it's emphasized that this world is designed to be a plurality. It's why when you go outside uh, and you look around, you see a diversity of beauty that is stunning. 
Even here in the desert where things, you know, tend to be a little bit more subdued, there is a beauty, an exquisite beauty to what we see in the creation around us. There's more than one star in the heavens, more than one planet. There are more than one kind of animal. The, the, the creation is profuse with things that have been created that live together after their own kind. So there's a communal aspect to everything God created, to nature itself. But look at this. There's also a communal nature to God. Now this is something that sets Christianity apart. I'll try my best to explain it, but it's not completely comprehensible. There's a lot of mystery involved. The communal nature of God, a plurality that exists not in the temporal, not in the the, the created world, but in the eternal world, somewhere out there that we don't understand all of that. But in God's eternity, there is also a plurality. Look at these very famous verses in verse 26 and 27. Let us make Adam. Now he used a word in Hebrew, Adam, which means uh, humanity. It is not man, although most translations do translate it man, but Adam was originally the generic term used for human beings or mankind. Now, Adam became Adam's uh, primary name because he was the first Adam. And uh, so we, but you don't want to confuse that. He's saying he made all of creation after an image that was existing in eternity. Let us make man, human beings, in our image after our likeness. Now that doesn't mean that they're not going to make more babies in some spiritual way. It's going to be done the old-fashioned way. But what it does mean is that, that mankind is imbued or invested with something more than your average um, your average bear. Y'all don't remember Yogi? Okay. Man, I'm getting old. This is Yogi Bear. Well, anyway, mankind is imbued with this image of God, an image and a likeness. These two words in Hebrew are parallel. They're not two different things. They're things that complement one another. They will reign over the fish of the sea, the birds they... You see, let us make Adam and they, Adam, will reign. That's man and woman. Livestock, wild animals, small animals. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. These are, these are, are uh, repetitions to make emphasis, okay? In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So there's a plurality. Now, you know, and you can read theology books and, when, and they'll say that uh, when, when God said, let us make man, it was a reference to the Holy Trinity, to Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And there may be some inclination of that, but that is not what would have been in Moses' mind. Moses would have been thinking of the celestial court 
that all the cultures on earth believed there was a natural world and then there was some eternal world out there and that in that world, that, that other realm, that heavenly realm was inhabited by divine beings. Now, it could be a pantheon like in Hinduism, you know, 350-some million gods. Or it could be the Greek pantheon with Zeus and, uh, and Mars and all these other uh, gods and goddesses. Uh, it could be the uh, gods of the ancient Near East, which they had hundreds. They had Baal and Marduk and, and uh, Chemosh and all these various gods and goddesses who inhabited the celestial world. So Moses was not throwing out something that was unknown, What he was doing is Moses was taking a parallel. He was saying, these are lies. This is the truth. But he did it in such a way that the language would make sense. And so a person in the ancient Near East would have said, let, would have heard, let us make mankind in our image. He would have understood that there is a plurality in the eternal creation as well. Now, as time went on, we got to understand more and more about what that was. There were angels, there were seraphim and cherubim. God, God is pictured repeatedly as a king who sits on a throne in a court surrounded by uh, these, these celestial council of these great beings that he created who all bow down and worship him. Let us make man in our image. In other words, something in you and in me the thing that separates us and makes us different than all the rest of the creation is that that comes from Him to us that we call the Imago Dei, the image and likeness of God. This leads to what we call, and this is a little technical. I know I hope you'll stick with me. This is a little bit of theology, but let's try to work together with it. This communal nature of God in the words that he spoke to Adam and Eve give us what we call the creation mandate. In other words, man and woman, men and women, were given a mandate or a command to be fruitful, to multiply, to not replenish but to plenish. The word actually is plenish or fill the earth. Plenish the earth. Fill it up with more of me. You see, the image was a reflection. Human beings, in, in many ways, not just physically, because God is not a physical being, but in our ontology, our being, the way we were created, we were made specifically to represent Him and to be able to reproduce more of the same. In other words, when... Uh, uh, the, the, uh, the ancient emperors and, and kings of the ancient Near East, and even to, to this day, uh, how do they take control of their country? Well, the way they do it is by force. They conquer. And then if you go into the countries in the ancient Near East, they find these things everywhere. They find statues of Pharaoh Everywhere throughout the land. In fact, within the borders of their land, they would put up statue after statue of Nebuchadnezzar, of Cyrus. When the U.S. went into Iraq in 2001 or whenever we invaded Iraq, 2002, 
they found, what did they find on every corner, on every wall, in every place? If some of you were there at the time, what did they see everywhere? Pictures of who? Saddam Hussein. Not two candidates, just one. And that's how they took control. I'm the only king. And so Moses is telling the people of Israel that this is how God intended us to live in community with one another so that we can reproduce either by natural means through physical relations and having babies or also in extending the kingdom of God out into the far reaches of the world from the Garden of Eden into the land of Eden. If you read the text carefully, he's talking about spheres of influence. You have a garden, the man's placed in the garden, but it's the garden is in the land of Eden and the land of Eden is in the Middle East and the Middle East is in the world. And so there's this sense in which we're going to start in the garden with you. We're going to reproduce and fill and plenish the earth. And that image is going to be out there and it's going to fill the earth and we're going to subdue what uh, in Genesis 1, the, the formless and void, the tohu vabohu, the, the, the chaos that was out there in the, in the world. We're going to bring it under the control of God and we're going to do this communally. Look at 28 and and 31. These are are two verses. You know, these verses are familiar. Sometimes we just skip over them and we read them and, you know, we start wondering, here's what happens to us, folks, and this is really a, a shame, is we start thinking scientifically. We start thinking, oh my goodness, how did he do it in 24? You mean the world was created in 24 hours? Look, I don't know if the world was created in 24 hours, six day, 24 hour days. Neither do you, neither does anybody else. We don't know how it was created. The point of Genesis is not to give you a scientific explanation for the creation of the world. It's to tell you why the world was created and why you exist. What is your meaning? Why are you here? Why is a human being? Why do you feel the way you do about anything? The mechanism, the scientific mechanism is not the issue. Someday we may find out, but right if the text was giving us science, it would be it would have been volumes and volumes and volumes of explanation. Instead, he gives us a poem that's only thirty one verses long. So he's not giving us science, folks. He's giving us a reason for why you and I exist and why we need to be fruitful and multiply. Why we need life groups. Why we need journey discipleship. You cannot become a disciple coming to church. You can't. You're fooling yourself. Coming to church is for us to come together and worship our living God together in a communal nature. What we're supposed to be doing all week culminates in these 45 minutes or an hour on Sunday morning when we join together in community and worship God and partake of His sacraments. We're going to uh, listen. Let, let this sink in. In a moment, when the sermon is done, we're going to all eat from the tree of life. Do you get it? 
We're going to eat and drink the fruit of the vine. We're in the garden and we're going to share this holy sacrament. That's why some theologians have said the tree of life in the garden was a sacrament to the people of God. They were to go there and feed upon God so they could have life in themselves. Instead, we chose knowledge of good and evil. So there's a communal nature to humanity, a plurality to our nature. So when we do the, the two, when we go to the extremes that I said a moment ago, if you go to the extremes saying, you know, being around people makes me tired. I don't like people. Or you go to the other extreme saying, I can't be without people because, you know, I get nervous. I got to be around people. I love people. I got to have a lot of energy in my life. Those two extremes can become idolatrous for you. And actually, there's no happy medium. I wish we could say that, you know, that, okay, over here's the extrovert, over here's the introvert, and okay, let's all all squish ourselves down into the perfect middle. Have any of you taken those personality tests? How many of you have done that? Okay, everybody's, you know, Myers-Briggs, you know, now it's the Enneagram. Have any of you done the Enneagram? No, no, you should do that. It's fun. It's not witchcraft, it's just fun. And, and, and super dumb. Do you know, do you know where I end up? I've taken all these, we had to do it in seminary, we had to, I think Dawson had to do it at seminary. I always end up right in the perfect middle. That's why you all are so blessed to have me as your pastor. I'm perfectly in the middle. On a scale of one to ten, I'm five in everything. I am so balanced that it's actually scary. All right. So the communal nature of humanity cannot be denied. And if we go on either side of that and we get out of whack, so what does it mean? It means that, you know, you may be wired, and and we all are wired a certain way, our DNA, and you don't want to always be trying to break your DNA and be something you're not. But insofar as you can, recognize the need that you need other people to some extent. Maybe you can't be the person that's the life of every party. But you at least show up to the party sometimes and you participate and you know that the other party goers cannot make the party happen without your contribution. And those of you that are extroverts, you got to be in everything. Maybe you need to, to back down a little bit and make room for other people so that they can contribute. Sadly, and you all have heard this before, sadly, 90% of the work that is done in the church is done by what percentage of the people? Maybe 10 or 20%. And so Dawson, you know, he's asking for, let's, let's change our DNA. Everybody contribute. Now maybe you can't contribute, you know, hours and hours a week, but you can go to a life group or you can be in the journey discipleship or you can invite people, you know, to lunch once in a while. You can do something. You can contribute some way to the life and body of your community, at least here at Christ the King. So there's a communal nature to humanity that we cannot deny. When we go against it, it becomes unhealthy. You can be so involved that it just eats up all your time and you have no life outside the life of the church. And we don't want that. Or you can be so hunkered down that you're not around anybody and that also can lead to a lot of pathology. Humanity was created just like the rest of the creation to be fruitful, to multiply. 
The difference is you and I have this image of God and that is going to be both good and bad. Good in that you have within you the capability, the capacity to represent God in a world that is dying, which we'll get to in just a moment. On the other hand, you will also not be able to find your life, your purpose, your meaning apart from Him. And that is why so many of us as human beings, we're we're not satisfied. We want more money. We want more sex. We want better. We want to be better looking. We want to be smarter. We want to be richer. We want to be taller, thinner. You name it. Just pick it. We're never satisfied. We're never content with what we have. We always want more. We want knowledge of not just good, but evil. We want the knowledge that God has. We want to intrude rather than living in community and being healthy and all of us in the community looking to Him, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Instead, Satan's grand strategy was to get us to quit looking at God and quit looking at each other and look at what? The tree of knowledge of good and evil. Look at that. Yes, has got there was in Hebrew it's a hiss. Like a snake. Hiss. Has God said? We translate it in the Bible, yay, has God said. And then the, the, the Eve answers and he says, No, God did not say that. And you will not die. Liar, liar, pants on fire. And that's what Satan does. He lies. He tells you, you know, if you get this, you're good to go. You'll be satisfied. It will fill your desire. Eat from this tree. It will fill your desire. Have you ever heard that? I hear it every day. I don't know about you all. Do this, get this, have this, and, er you know, everything will be okay. And folks, it's simply not okay. You won't find your life purpose, your ability to mirror God, to represent Him, to commune with Him if you're isolated or if you're so busy that you don't know which end it is, is up. You've got to have... That's why He gave us a day of rest so we could pull aside and focus all our energy on Him and the people around us who are with us in His presence. See, I can worship God on my own in my backyard. I don't need you. But it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing because I can't eat from the bread or drink the wine of this table by myself. I can't eat from the common loaf without being here with you. I can't drink from the common cup without being here with you. So the fabric of all creation, folks, is communal, and we can't get around that. It's plural, it's diverse, and yet it's unified. And God called this very good. This was very good. Now, in chapter 2, you probably noticed from the reading, he said there was something that was not good. What was that? What was not good? Not good that man should be alone. Now, he's talking specifically about the singular man, the man Adam. He's saying, you know, the animals 
what the, what the text is telling us is that the animals could not s- supply the needs of that man. Now, I have two little dogs at my house. Uh, they're both crazy. And uh, they're, they're little chihuahua mixed. They're mixed up with God who knows what. But, but anyway, they're, they're nutty. And they're knuckleheads. And I love them to death. But they can't meet all of my needs. They meet certain needs. But when I want somebody that, you know, I can snuggle up on the couch with and look at uh, a movie and enjoy the movie, even though my dog enjoys watching, one of them will watch the movie like he really knows what's going on. You need some other human being. and You need your spouse, your husband, your wife, your kids. There's one thing to listen to uh, the Mendelssohn Octet. Remember that, Dave? There's one thing to listen to it by yourself on Spotify and another thing to sit in the audience next to Dave Fickett and listen to it. That was a whole different experience, wasn't it? Yeah, because he and I were hugging each other and crying after it was over. And I don't cry when I listen to Mendelssohn's Octet by myself, although I do get excited, but I don't cry. There's something remarkable when we're together at a basketball game or a football game or a concert or a meal, Thanksgiving dinner. Something magical happens when we let the barriers down and we sacrifice the inconveniences of our privacy and our time is so valuable and I'm so valuable. And, you know, it gets us into toxicity that I can't even explain. And instead, we let those things come down and we get into community with people that we can trust. And that's what church is to be. Now, we fail, but... Shouldn't we at least try? Can I get a yes? And you know, let's try. That's what the life groups are going to do for us. That's what church is supposed to do for us. When you come to Christ the King, we want anybody. I don't care if you've got a bone in your nose. Please come. Right? I don't care. Please come. Bring your junk with you. And come join the rest of us with our junk. And you will find the communal God, the one who in himself is a plurality of love and kindness. So where did the breakdown? That's the formation of community. The breakdown is, is uh, an ancient story of the eating of the tree, uh, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And again, remember, this is poetry. I'm not saying it didn't literally happen. What I'm saying is you've got to understand the literary nature of the story because if you think it, it was just eating an apple or eating a fig or uh, eating... I had one lady, to, after a sermon years ago here at Christ the King, she came up to me and she said, I know what the fruit was in the garden. I know which fruit it was. And I said, really? And she says, yes, God told me. Well, that's the end of the conversation right there. If he told you, then what am I going to say? Yes, he told me. I said, well, what was the fruit in the garden? Grapes. They took grapes and they made wine and they got drunk. That's why we're not supposed to use alcohol. I said, please don't ever come back to church here. (laughs) Just go find another church. No, I mean, really, that's the kind of crazy thing we get into. We want it to be so wooden, so literal. We start searching for what kind of fruit it was and what, you know... That isn't the point. The point of the story is they betrayed their creator. They broke community. 
They broke their ability to commune with Him. And they became afraid. And God comes into the garden and He says, What? Where are you? He doesn't say, I see you. He graciously extends a hand after a betrayal of the worst possible kind. He says, where are you? Not, I see you. And they answered. They said, well, we heard your voice and we've got, we became, we, we're afraid and we're naked. Who told you you were naked? And listen to what they start doing. Adam says to God, the woman you gave me. Then he turns to the woman. He said, what happened? The serpent. It's not in the text, but it's implied. The serpent you made. He deceived me. Every one of us, folks, we never want to own anything, do we? We always want to push it off on somebody else. What does it tell you? It tells you that communion was broken. The woman and the man, communion broken. Those of you that are married or you've had relationships, boyfriends, girlfriends, whatever it is, you know how difficult it is to be in a relationship with another human being, sometimes especially our spouse, can be incredibly painful. And then there's the relationship with God that gets broken. Where are you implies that they were hiding, which they did. They sowed fig leaves. They put the fig leaves on thinking that would cover it up. And they go hide. Their relationship, their communion, their community with God who had been walking in the cool of the day with them, now that's broken. And how many of us go through a lifetime until you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, we go through a lifetime wondering, how can I get God to accept me? How do I relate to whatever the divine is? I know there's something out there. I just don't know what it is. He, she, it, them. I don't know what it is, but I want to know how to relate. Should I just do the best I can? Should I work hard? Should I be a good person? Should I not commit murder? What, you know, what is it? What do I have to do to regain communion with God? And it torments us. And again, we make the twin, we either go become super religious and try to be all good and all this stuff, or we just become really bad. Ah, who can, nobody can. I'm just going to indulge myself and enjoy myself for myself. Which means I'm not living in communion. Right? No more communion. No more community. It's all about me, me, me. The woman you gave me, the serpent deceived me. And so God tells them, here's the consequences of what you've done. Not punishment. This is just the way it's going to be. For women, there's going to be pain in your childbirth. You see, the one thing that should be so wonderful and glorious that a woman only can achieve is having a baby. But it's not going to be that way anymore. Now you're going to be worried about those kids. And there'll be pain associated with reproduction instead of beauty and love. And then for the man, he says, you know, the ground's going to be cursed. Now think about this, fellas. I know. Because I had a business for 20 years and I sacrificed my family on the altar 
of that business, my wife and my children. I put them up there and I cut their throats just as much as any animal. I made them last and least so I could make money. Work, labor. God said to the man, now you're going to, labor's going to be sweaty and hard. It's going to be among thorns and thistles. It's not going to give you what you want. And I have yet to meet a man or even a woman now that more women are working. I've yet to meet anyone whose career utterly and completely satisfies them and they don't want anything else. Anybody that raises their hand is lying. <laughs> I saw you back there. You, you, cannot, you cannot get from your life and your pursuits that which satisfies you or will satisfy you the most. Do you understand where I'm coming from? You can't get it. So it leaves you empty and dry. So what's the answer? Let's finish up real quick. Listen. There is a formation of community, a breakdown in community. And by the way, this is why I tell you that everything from Genesis chapter 4 on was written because of what happened in Genesis 3. Everything. There would be no Bible if we didn't have Genesis 3. So how do we get to the recreation? And this is something that we have... Dawson, myself, our elders, all of the officers in our church, our women's council that we're committed to, and that is bringing you to the person who can, the only person that can restore community and give you something that will satisfy you when everything else fails. Listen, verse 15 of chapter 3. Because you have done this. This is what he said to the serpent. Because you have done this, you're cursed more than all the animals. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust. I'll cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head. You will strike his heel. He will strike your head. You will strike his heel. What that means is, that the one who will come, the seed, will crush your head, but not without a cost. The heel in Hebrew is a euphemism for humanity, for the, uh, our, lo- our, our, our human nature, the bottom of our feet represents the human nature. How did Jesus do that? And why is it so important for you to commune, not just with with you know, with with him in, in solo, but him among the people of God. How and why is that important? His victory, folks, the victory that Jesus achieved in his blood, in his death, it wasn't done in community. He was by himself. He was by himself on the cross with nothing. Not even any clothes. Not one friend stood by his side. 
Even his father, he cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is your Savior. This is your King who underwent the the complete elimination of community. He was bereft, alone, in the dark, in pain, suffering, alone. Why? So that you and I, in a moment, could eat from the tree of life. He was denied the tree of life. So we could eat from the tree of life. This is my body. This is my blood. All he's asking for you and I is to trust him. Trust him with our lives. Get into our community. Go to church. Be involved in your church. Be involved with your neighbors, even if they're not believers. Look at the look at the culture out there, not as something to hide from, but something to to go into. It's messy out there. Yeah, it's dangerous. You might get you might get a little dirt on your cheek. Okay, go and do it for the sake of someone else. Because He became utterly and completely alone for you. That gives us the power and the ability to go out and give our lives to others. So, will you do it? Will you trust Him? I hope you will. Father, uh, we thank You for this. Thank You. Um, I know it's uncomfortable. We're, we're the busiest people that have ever lived on this planet, going back to the beginning of time. And yet somehow, Father, we've got to find our place in our community with you and then from that live in community with everyone around us so we pray that you'll help us that you'll save us and that you'll have mercy on us according to your grace amen